In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Today is the tenth Sunday after Trinity, and we're continuing in Luke chapter 13. There are 23 Sundays after Trinity, so you can see that we're close to being halfway through uh, the course of this season. And so uh, about approximately halfway through the Gospel of Luke, or as far as we'll get through it uh, before we get to Advent, as we don't read the the Passion narrative, but save that uh, for that season of Lent. So here we are continuing in Luke chapter 13, and uh, you'll remember that we've talked about how when Jesus changes geography, often the the course of the narrative changes. And so we're seeing that here in this passage. You'll notice that it says uh, here in Luke chapter 13 verse 22 uh, that he was going towards Jerusalem, that he's journeying towards Jerusalem. And so this acts as a shift, as a change in the narrative, but it's also a reminder to us. Uh, We've seen this reminder before that he's headed towards Jerusalem, but this is the focus of his ministry. This is the the goal of his ministry, is the act that he will do in Jerusalem. And we've seen him talking about this in the Mount of Transfiguration. We've seen him warning the disciples about this. Uh, We've seen all of the course of the parables talking about the reality of sacrificial love and the importance of sacrificial love is uh, fully evidenced in the cross. And so we want to remember that. We want to remember what happens in Jerusalem as we read this passage. We want to read uh, what he's doing here in the light of sacrificial love and what he does on the cross. So he is going to do something extraordinarily difficult, right? This is extraordinarily difficult what Jesus is going to do. It's extraordinarily difficult for us to, to sacrifice to this degree. So he's going to do a mighty and difficult act. And as he's headed there, this question that follows is, will many get into heaven or will few get into heaven? Which is another way of saying, is it going to be easy or is it going to be hard? Now, in the light of the cross, what's the answer? It's really hard. See, we participate in the cross. So if we say, oh, it's really easy what Jesus did, ah, that was nothing like falling out of bed, then the answer to who goes to heaven would be the same. No problem. It's easy. But in the light of the cross, this question is, will it be difficult or will it be easy? And so Jesus' main word here, the important word here is strive. We strive for things that are difficult. We strive for things that are precious. We've talked about athletes and the sacrifice that athletes have to undergo because of the preciousness of the prize. And so if we understand the preciousness of the prize, which is life in the kingdom, then we'll understand the necessity to sacrifice for that prize and the effort that goes into striving. And he says that we're to strive to go through the narrow door. 
So the narrow door is giving us the sense again that we've been given before about the shepherd and the sheep and about that that door of the sheep gate uh, where he's told us that he is the shepherd and he is the door. Right? That there's this, this singular place where we might enter. There aren't many ways to the Father. And this is why anyone who says that Allah is the same as the God of Israel, we have to say no. Because Jesus says, I have revealed the Father. The Father and I are one. I am the door. So unless we proclaim Christ, we're not proclaiming the door into the kingdom of God. The door is narrow. There aren't many ways in. There's one door. Through Jesus and through his sacrifice on the cross, he's the door and he's the way. He's the way in which we get to the door. He points us to the door. So he's the way, he's the door, he's the gate, he's the shepherd once we get into the passage. And so all is focused upon the work of the cross and upon our participation by walking along the path with him and by entering in through him. And then he says that there will be many who, at the last day, that is at the second coming, say, Oh, we know you. And sometimes this is offered as being enough. There's a a philosophy that we've been talking about in Bible study lately, uh, started by the great uh, philosopher Epicurus, and it's gone down throughout the centuries, and what we might call deism, or uh, kind of a, a modern understanding of God. You know, many people say, oh sure, I believe in God, right? He's this far off, distant God who occasionally comes down and, and works a miracle or occasionally does something in certain periods of time. He's distant, he's other, and most of the time he just minds his business and we should mind ours. And so when that distance is, is proposed, which is not true, this is not who God is, right? God is imminent, he's with us. So this is a false understanding of God. But when you have that false understanding of God, then it seems like a really big thing to say, oh, I know he's there. It seems like a great act of faith to say, I believe that he's there far away. It seems like a great act of faith to say, I believe that he occasionally works in the world. That seems like a really big deal because he's so far away and so few people understand him or know about him in this false narrative of heaven, that just to say, I believe in God, seems like something important. It's not important at all. It's the level, as we've said before, that the demons are at. Satan knows there's a God. How's that working for him? Not at all. The demons know that there's a God, and they know that he's imminent. And so these people that say, oh yeah, we ate with you, we know who you are, are somehow suggesting that just to know who Jesus is, is sufficient. And sometimes we leave it at that. We'll ask people, do you know Jesus? And they'll say, sure, I know him. One of my best friends in seminary was a roadie for a gospel band, and he went to stay uh, with a a Hindu uh, household that brought in uh, this gospel band to play and house them. And uh, so the, they were really, you know, on fire for evangelism, this gospel band. And so they go into this Hindu family's house and they ask that question, do you know Jesus? And they said, sure, we know him. He's right there. 
right? On the wall with the hundred other gods. So knowing who he is, is not enough. And some of the fathers would say that this eating and drinking that's talked about is the sacraments. So to receive his body and blood in the sacraments itself is not enough. Some way, nothing that we can do is enough. There is no work that we can do. But we are saved by faith for good works. And in that sense, there's never enough because there's always more for us to sacrifice, always more for us to offer, always more for us to love, always more for us to do. And the love is in the doing and the sacrificing and the yearning for God and for his kingdom. And if we think that we're going to rest on saying, oh, I know who he is, or I believe that there's a God, or I had dinner with him once, or I went to church a couple of times and had communion, what is that? That'd be like me saying about Aaron, yeah, we have dinner sometimes, it's all right, it's fun. You know, I try to have dinner with her a couple of times a year. Or people that say, oh, I can worship God anywhere. That'd be like inviting them to your birthday party and them saying, well, I can celebrate your birthday anywhere. I really don't need to come to your house and have cake. I can go someplace else and celebrate it. Oh, thank you. Doesn't make any sense. Because out of our love for God and our desire to be with Him and our striving, our desire, our passion to be one with Him, we're constantly searching and striving to be with Him. And this is what Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 28 when he says that the cornerstone has been laid. He's talking about Christ. Some people get confused and think that the prophets of the Old Testament don't know who Jesus is. They know exactly who Jesus is. Our Lord says, Abraham saw my day. Isaiah knows exactly who Christ is. And he tells us about him, that the cornerstone who is Christ has been laid. And what is it that he joins? He joins... Gentile and Jew, the cornerstone is the, the corner of the wall. It's the joint that allows both walls to rest and to be fixed together and to be supported. So it not only supports the walls, but it allows them to be joined and to form one. Gentile and Jew come together. The law and the prophets come together. Grace and faith come together. Kingdom and earth come together. He joins heaven and earth. In his incarnation, when God became man, he joined heaven and earth. Those are the two walls that have been brought together. And he's saying, my kingdom is right here, right now. I've joined them together and they rest both upon me. And then we have the line and the plumb line, which are two of my favorite figures in scripture don't you love that the way the lord uses these these um simple methods right so if you're going to build a wall you can't just eyeball it right i don't know if you've ever tried to do that it doesn't work right psychology 101 textbooks show you why it doesn't work because the eye deceives us right the eye deceives us so we can't just look and see what's right or what's straight we have to have a line so if we're going to build this wall and we're going to join it and make sure that it joins to the corner, we have to be able to, to line it up. And he's saying that justice is that line. Justice is a weird thing. Nobody's ever seen it. 
We all want it. We all know what it is. Even little children on the playground. You don't have to teach kids justice. You don't have to teach them fair. The youngest age, as soon as they're able to talk, they'll say right away, that's not fair. Nobody taught them that. They know exactly what right and wrong are. Why? Because they're made by God in His image. It's written on their heart. They know justice. And they know what equity is. And that's the line that's written on our heart, yet we've never actually experienced it. We yearn for it, we hunger for it, but none of us get it. This side of heaven, we never get true justice. But the Lord's saying, I provide it. I'm the one who's going to line it up. You can't do it. My justice is the line that's going to join heaven to earth. It's not your justice. Your line isn't straight. Moreover, righteousness is the plumb line. You'll remember the plumb line that we love to talk about from Amos, right? It's the weight on the bottom to make sure that the wall is straight this way. So we've got the line of justice and then we go from the top of the wall and we have that weight at the bottom to make sure that the wall isn't curved, that it's not going to fall. That plumb line also makes sure that it's straight and it's righteousness. Again, doing what's right. It's written on our hearts. Nobody's ever actually seen it done, but we know when it's not done right. And we know that we hunger for it and that we want it. And God would provide these things for us as he builds his kingdom and he would ask us incredibly to participate with him in it. Which is probably the most amazing part of the whole thing, isn't it? That in our foolishness, and our smallness, he would ask us to help him in this project. Which is the letter to the Hebrews point here in chapter 13 of the letter to the Hebrews. This is such a strange letter, isn't it? He says, you have come to the city of the living God. You have come. He's saying, we already are there. We're already in that city. We're already in the kingdom. We're already in heaven because we've died in baptism and risen again in newness of life. Because we've received the body and blood of our Savior. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and whenever, wherever God is, so is His kingdom. He says, you're already there. Isn't that incredible? He says, we're already there. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, to heavenly Jerusalem. This isn't a place on a map. This is the true kingdom of God. He says where there are innumerable angels who are all gathered in festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven with spirits of the righteous and with Jesus and with his blood. We're already there. When we participate in the cross and that sacrificial love, we already are there and dwelling. And then he says everything else is going to be shaken up. Everything else is going to be tossed over. That wall that we build, that wall that governments build, that wall that all the other things that we strive for build are just going to be knocked over. The Lord's going to come and say, how'd you build that wall? With my righteousness? Did you use my justice? Let me see. Oh, didn't stand up. It's not righteous. It's not justice. That will be torn down. And again, just because of who we are or because of who we know, it counts for nothing. This is, this is the part that blows me away, is that he, he reminds us of Esau. Ouch! That one hurts, doesn't it? 
Abraham received a promise. Isaac received a promise. Your sons will be. Esau is the firstborn son. Esau had the expectation of being in the line of Abraham to be one of the righteous. He had every expectation. In some way we should be saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But we don't. Because Esau didn't value, didn't truly value what he had. What about Jacob? He lies for it. He cheats for it. He'll steal for it. He'll work for it. He'll do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get the kingdom. Whatever it takes to dwell with you. Whatever it takes to be with you, Lord, I'll give up everything. I'll look the fool. I'll be fooled myself. I'll do whatever it takes. That's striving. What Jacob does for the kingdom, that's striving because he wanted those firstborn rights more than anything. He wanted the promise of his grandfather Abraham more than anything, and he'd do anything to get it. Anything to get it. That's striving. And we can't even step forward before we realize that the kingdom of heaven is right here, right now, and that God is with us. This psalm, I usually don't preach on the psalm for whatever reason, but Psalm 46 verse 19, Be still and know that I am God. This isn't knowing like you know a telephone number. It's not knowing like you know an address. It's not knowing like you know how to get someplace. This is an intimate knowledge that can only come when we are still and we wait upon the Lord and His Spirit of righteousness and justice until we feel His presence here with us right now today. The Lord would speak to us. The Lord would dwell with us. The Lord would show us what to do right here, right now today. Be still and know that I am God. And then we'll know how to act. We'll know how to strive. We'll see the line and the plumb line that have been set for righteousness and justice by God himself. And we'll be able to help him build that wall that joins heaven and earth so that we might dwell with him this day and forevermore. Amen.